Hello and welcome to the Climbing Consulting Podcast with me, your host, Nick Sinnott. As this is the first episode of the podcast, I wanted to give you a bit of background on why I've created this podcast and what it's all about. So as a management consultant myself, I've always been very lucky in my career to have mentors who have guided me every step of the way. When I was in-house working in a consulting firm, I regularly had quality time with senior partners from across the firm and that really helped me rapidly accelerate my career and has helped me even after I've left consulting and moved on to the independent side. While I had this great resource and knowledge bank to draw on, I know from conversations with many of my friends in consulting that not everyone's that lucky. And speaking to some of my contacts in the industry, they may only get an hour, uh, be it a month or a quarter, with some of the senior leadership in their firm. That's why I created this podcast. I wanted to help people like you who want to accelerate their careers in consulting by interviewing leaders in the field to share their tips, their advice and their strategies that they use to get to the top so that you can too. In each episode, I'll be interviewing a senior figure from the consulting industry so that you can learn from them. We'll be going deep into their backgrounds. We'll be looking at how they succeeded and what advice they would give to you that you can take away and apply directly in your own career. Now, bear with me with this. This is the first one and they will all get better with time. I am very much keen to be led by you. If there are guests that you want to hear on the podcast, if there's information that you want shared, if there's questions you want me to ask the guests, please just let me know. Drop me an email at nick at climbinconsulting.com. If you think the podcast's great, let me know. Please give it a review on iTunes or Stitcher. If you think it's rubbish, please also give it a review and let me know why so I can make it better for you. So to today's show, well, today's guest and my very first guest is Matt Chung. Matt is CEO and co-founder of Clarisys. Now, since founding Clarisys with his two co-founders in 2010, it has grown from an idea, and we talk about where that all started during the podcast, to a team of over 70 consultants working across a range of industries, including financial services, events, healthcare, utilities, and information services. Matt is an expert in agile program delivery, having spent the majority of his career delivering large-scale, complex systems implementations using agile methodology. We cover a whole load in this interview, including what Matt sees as the key differentiator for those who make it to the top in consulting, what holds people back, his advice for those people moving from a big consultancy to a small one, and what you can do to ensure that the agile project that you may be working on at the moment is delivered successfully. I had a great time with Matt. It was a really fun interview, and I'm sure you're going to get a lot out of it. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Matt Chung. Hi, Matt. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Nick. So to get started, for those who maybe don't know you as well, could you give a brief background on your career so far and how you got to where you are today? Sure. So uh, I joined PwC Consulting uh, 20 years ago. Uh, I joined a grad course at during the dot-com boom uh, where PwC was scaling their business quite quickly. Uh, they just moved, merged Pricewaterhouse and Coopers and Librand. Um, so I, I went through a grad course, I learned how to code, I then spent probably the following five and a half years with PwC, who subsequently got bought by IBM. Um, I did a variety of uh, projects, some good, some bad, and mainly in not so nice parts of the country. Um, and then I decided that IBM really wasn't the place for me, uh, so I moved to a much smaller uh, consultancy called the Barclay Partnership. Uh, I stayed there for about a year. I was doing more uh, program management, much more senior stuff than I'd done at IBM, which was good for me. And I learned a bunch of stuff about myself. But I, again, felt that perhaps I wasn't in the right place. Um, and one of my previous clients got in touch with me, asked me to help them recover a program that wasn't going so well. Um, and I went to work uh, as a contractor at Thomson Reuters for probably four or five years um, doing a number of roles. I, I I was an architect initially. I moved into a program manager, program director role for a year and a half, put live one of their major programs. And then uh, in one of the worst roles I've ever done, I was head of customer data for a year. Um, 
which largely involved telling someone that we would be another three months late for the thing that somebody before me had promised him was going to be done in three months. Uh, and at the end of that, I, in tandem with Chris and Claudia, uh, decided to start Clarisys. For the first couple of years at Clarisys, we continued to do kind of consulting roles alongside running the business uh, after I think my last consulting role was at Deutsche Bank. And then um, since then, I've focused entirely on building Clarisys and making sure that we can sustain our business and that we can we can grow into a, a best-in-class organization. Thank you. Before we go on to founding Clarisys and, and how that got started, I just wanted to touch on what you said about the uh, customer data role being your worst worst ever role, I think you said. You obviously mentioned part of that was about having to give the stakeholders feedback that what they've been promised they wouldn't get for three months. Was that what made it the worst role or what, what is it that made it the worst and what did that teach you? Um, I think as a whole, it was a highly complex place to be at the time. I think you had multiple stakeholders who wanted different things. It's very difficult actually in a data governance role to influence people to care. Um, and if you've got a set of stats that basically stay across the board, your data isn't very good and you need to do something about it on top of the organization to do a major transformation, which is dependent on that data being right. And a lot of changes required in order to get the data to remain right, then you're not in a good place. And I, for me, I think also maybe I just wasn't busy enough as well in it. It was one of those roles where you set out, this is a strategy we're going to do. And occasionally you actually have to badger people about it, but there's nothing to actually really be intense about day to day. And I suspect that that was, that's difficult for me in general. Probably I probably have a need to be busy uh, or I did at that time. I might not have that now. What's been the change? I think there's an element of work-life balance, um, but, and 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 certainly now that's enforced by having children. There's also a uh, realization that you're diminishing returns and that potentially you should be trusting your team more. So I think in my twenties, I would be unlikely to trust my team as much as I would trust them now, and probably hadn't developed the set of mechanisms that allow you to trust your team because it's not just about kind of falling back without somebody being able to catch you. Uh, potentially also in my 20s I just had a lot more energy so I think I was doing this role what well, I must have been 28 or 29 maybe a bit older uh, you learn a lot between as the years go by and I think one of the key things is how to just be more efficient and understand when you don't need to be busy and to take that opportunity to think more about how you avoid silly problems. And one of the points you raised there around the diminishing returns, I think it's actually quite a an interesting one in, in a consulting environment. I know I'm an independent myself at the moment. When I was in-house, there wasn't an expe expectation to work late, but I think there was a culture of longer hours, working in the evenings. It's interesting what you say around actually that potentially leading to diminishing returns is that just the culture of consulting generally is there a better way to do that as you've you've potentially found i think there are times when you have to to work hard so i think in my career when i've had to work hard it's because probably a few reasons so one is somebody's massively oversold a deal we did a famous project to pwc the contract had a very special line in it which said replicate existing functionality in full team had six months to do that in um there were 30 of us we worked 15 hour days because there just wasn't really any other way to do it or at least we didn't think there was at the time um so you can end up doing that because somebody's done something they shouldn't and because you're a professional and you're trying to achieve that goal it's not the right way to do it but you can understand why you have to do that equally perhaps looking at, again at that project you could argue that had we designed the way we did it differently, then we'd have been a lot more efficient about it. One of the reasons that we use Agile all the time is because Waterfall tends to demand that you have possibly a few months of, oh, yeah, I'm not that busy. You've got some documents to write. Oh, the deadline's coming out. Oh, I better finish those documents and make sure that they're perfect. Great. I've delivered my stack of paper. I can have a bit of a chill for a couple of weeks. Oh, dear. I've got to do some development work. Oh, oh it's getting a bit busy. Oh, yeah. I just about finished it. And now it's in testing. And I can have another break because actually 
none of it works and the test team um, haven't figured that out yet and so that's okay and uh, now I've got quite a few bugs to fix so I'm feeling the pressure again and I'm getting busier and busier and busier so waterfall kind of lulls you into a peak and trough thing if we, I <laughs> I don't know whether it's it's an intriguing thing, right? That you could take agile and waterfall projects on the same thing next to each other and see which one wins. I'd hope the agile one worked. But what I do know is that if you start out on an agile project, the pressure is relentless and actually you don't get the tr- the peak of, oh, I must work until you know midnight to get something done. Um, well, you do, but if you've got to realize that actually you're going to have that pressure every single day. And so it's about what this team can sustainably deliver, not about hitting a pointless deadline. One of the fallacies of of a lot of what people do from a systems delivery, change delivery point of view is to view it as a deadline focused thing. It's not because as soon as you've delivered something, the business is going to tell you that it's not quite right or that there's something even better you could have done. So actually the first thing someone's going to say is, oh, but can we do this next? And, and so once you've gone live, actually, that's the most, in some ways, the busiest time, right? Because you've got to make sure that people adopt. You've got to make sure that actually what you've delivered is going to work. And you, you're basically back into another release cycle. So focusing on a single deadline to say, we must go live by this, and everyone working until they kind of feel broken, and then being broken when they actually need to be on top of their game to respond to um, what, whatever wave of, of issue comes out the other side isn't the right way so so that there's a thing about method and how you make sure that method is is working to deliver what you need to deliver and what the business needs not what the business thinks it needs and not what somebody wrote in a contract right so you're trying to deliver an outcome for the business that's not the same as delivering 100% of what was written in a contract which is difficult sometimes to get to work and then there's the thing about working smarter now uh, that's a really difficult one to deal with right because I remember I was at another PwC client and one of the associate directors or something like that came around and said, uh, oh, you shouldn't be working all the hours. You should just work smarter. And we're like, mm, that's that's not tremendously motivating. Thank you very much. Because actually we are, we think we're working as smart as we possibly could. So that's an interesting one. And, and part of that's about really understanding what your top priorities are. So I think what's happened for me is that firstly, I've got better at managing time. So I operate pretty much zero inbox by firing them off to Trello or somewhere for to pick up on them later if they're important or kind of dealing with them then if they're not. That's not necessarily the best thing to do because it's bad for you mentally in terms of responding to stuff. Um, it breaks your train of thought and stuff like that. So you just have to decide how you're going to deal with it. But then if you are very clear on your method and how you're going to approach things and you build a team that really functions together, you will get quicker and quicker. And the benefit of establishing, again, an agile pattern behind it is actually that team becomes more and more powerful doing the things you wanted to do and quicker and quicker because they're much more used to each other's behaviors so part of being smarter is making sure that you're establishing the right rhythm to work within um eliminating unnecessary meetings um trying to make sure that you really just focus on one or two major things to change rather than thinking that you can change it all at the same time for clarisis if we make one change a quarter and that has a positive impact that's great and actually, the business probably can't absorb more change than that because everyone's busy doing the consulting work and we don't necessarily want to distract them from that. We want to make them more efficient at it. But, you know, a reorganization, we don't really want to do one of them all the time. And you know, the next big idea, yes, we want to have it, but we want to start it slow and then find out whether it works and then iterate on it. Can you give an example of a positive change that has been implemented in Clarisys in that way? So there's a couple of things. So one one is that right now we're looking at how we scale our account management capability. That's going really through a kind of initial pilot beta minimum viable product, whatever you want to call it, with with one set of clients. Out of that will obviously come a set of changes. I think last year when we, we introduced uh, the competency framework for the first time, which we'd kind of mentally rejected for a while because I think like a lot of uh, consultants that come out of the big firms who are very wary of the hierarchy driven behavior and the kind of tick boxy exercise that that, that kind of level setting ends up with with smoke filled rooms and all sorts of mysterious things going on and what we said was that this is 
version one and there will be version two and there will be version three and we will get better and better at it but we won't be perfect from the start and i think that fundamentally that is something you have to start to accept right that 80 percent is normally enough 20 percent may be enough some of the time and beating yourself up to get to perfection is almost always going to enable you to fail failing is fine but don't fail for the fact that actually you focused on the remaining 20 percent of value which wasn't that valuable I think you've touched on some really interesting points there, and we'll delve into all of them over the uh, over the podcast. One I'd like to to jump in on because it sounds like something you're quite passionate about is agile. So I've worked on a number of agile programs in financial services in large scale organisations. If I'm completely honest with you, I've not seen any succeed the ones that I've worked on, and agile has usually been used, and this is just my perception, as an excuse for a lack of governance and delays. I've seen very often development sprints that are miles behind, but when when challenged, people will say, oh, it's agile, it's a sprint, it's fine, go off, you must just be waterfall, you don't understand it. What is it that separates a good agile program from a bad one? And what can someone who might be working in a program where they're, they're seeing challenges do to help start to turn it around? So I think that that's a fair summary of, of a lot of the things you see in the industry, right? But there's also an underlying psychology thing here, actually, where at the beginning of a waterfall project, you set a scope and you say, brilliant, we've set the scope, we're going to deliver that by X. And something in our minds is designed to be optimistic and designed to expect that that will happen. And that must be true, right? Because I've seen oh, every single project that I was on for 10 years failed and was late. And we had some amazing teams trying to deliver them. You'd go through your first phases and you'd slip the deadline and you'd raise exchange requests and brilliant, the governance was right, but you were failing your client and you were late at the end of it and you'd deliver nothing of value. And if someone pulled the plug in the middle, then actually it would be an abject failure. And uh, I've been on one that, where that happened. And, and I think... 15 years ago, I was looking at, I was actually challenged, we were looking at a big market risk implementation for um, an oil and gas major. And uh, we were talking about iterative development and what tech, which techniques we could use. And I, I kind of had that opinion. It's a bit cowboy. Mm, it's not really for enterprise delivery. And I remember sitting in a room with one of the offshore developers talking about RUP and Agile and he actually knew a lot more about it than me which I, I didn't realize at the time and obviously being a fairly confident uh, young consultant um, I, I don't think I was listening as much as I should so apologies to whoever that was but he was right and and his point was that RUP gives you structure Agile gives you ability to get the team to to execute on stuff it's a well-defined method and and before we talk about the, the specific question you asked then when when we were at Thomson Reuters we'd seen that project fail before and we looked at why it was failing right and and one of the things we said was if we get halfway through this project we want to be able, and our funding gets cut, we want to be able to put something live that still works. Um, and really, the only way you can do that is through Agile. So we ran over the, the program had about 250 people on it. It went live on time, well, a month after its original go live date, not because of development being late. Uh, and then it released seven releases after that on the dates we said and then a, an eighth which was another major one and then it went out to roll, to complete and, and remove some other legacy systems so we know, we know it works right and that was 2007 quite a long time ago most people you're right do mistake agile for oh we can just go and start doing stuff and that's just not right so one of the things that is a focus for Clarisys is actually, well, how do you do Agile on an enterprise scale within the enterprise process, right? So if you look at Google and Apple, they run Agile, Microsoft have run Agile for years, and most professional software organizations run Agile because that's a professional way of developing software. It allows your team to perform. It empowers the team. It means that generally people are in control of their, their work, their destiny. That makes people happier, makes them more productive. It's a virtuous circle. Consulting rejected that for some reason. And interestingly, waterfall project after waterfall project didn't make people's minds change. I think IBM is moving much more to agile at the moment. I'm not sure that overall the industry has yet seen the success it should have. And that's because... When you start 
an agile transformation of the size you were talking about, then actually you need to have a fair number of prerequisites. It's not the same as, all right, I'm in a room, I'm developing the Clarisys website. And actually, I've got a web developer, I've got a tester, I've got a product owner, and I can go out and ask anyone else in the firm immediately what you want to do. That will work really, really well. You'll be really successful. I can almost guarantee you'll be able to deploy daily updates to the website and it will get better and better. If you're working in a 10,000 plus person firm, uh, it's distributed over six countries, then you can't bring together the set of people who really deeply understand your end-to-end process to answer the question. So what happens is you bring together a bunch of developers, you put together the kit, you're ready to develop and you've got some user stories which you think you understand and you start developing and uh, the developer either blindly carries on or suddenly discovers the whole thing's a lot more complicated than you initially thought. And that's either because the technology stack wasn't well understood or because actually the business problem isn't well defined and the solution to the business problem isn't, just isn't there. And as soon as that happens, they go, oh, well, I need this question answered. And actually you might get an answer from the guy um, outside, but he's just representative of, I don't know, the UK. What about the US where the regulations are different or Australia where they want to do it slightly different or Russia where you've got a specific compliances you've got to comply with? One of the reasons we started Clarisys actually is because that question needs to be answered before you start developing. So how do you make sure that you've got a consistent global process or as consistent, consistent as it needs to be in order to be able to actually get that sprint flying? And actually, how do you slice that whole problem so that you're not trying to boil the ocean in one go, so that you're dealing with just the UK or whatever slice you decide to in a way that means that you can scale your program, but you're not blocked constantly by politics or by the general slowness of decision making that's often present in large firms and and that's not a criticism that's just it takes a while to get busy people together to agree on something that's quite complicated and that when they're trying to do the right thing for their firm as a whole so you can run a very good agile process a perfect scrum etc etc but if you haven't got the inputs to that development sprint right then yes you will be late in the same way that you'll be late with a waterfall one because the people that read your documents didn't read them properly and didn't agree them. It's a good point you mentioned there around organizations, large organizations especially, having that lag because like you say, people are busy, committees meet on certain dates every quarter, every month, etc. That structure seems to fit better with waterfall because you can, you know, if you take that typical Prince 2, you can take your peers and you can take each stage gate, get your approvals. How do... How would somebody make Agile work with those? What would they need to do maybe ahead ahead of starting the project to get that organization comfortable? So I think that there are two options, right? One is to fake Prince2. So basically, you uh, you can present the right set of documents at the right milestones that, that represent Agile. Prince2 and, and Agile are not incompatible. Um, the the idea that you don't need documentation is wrong, right? The Agile Manifesto said you, you value certain things over another, but you value both of them. Um, and actually, one of the key things for me is really understanding that you should only produce a document if there's a use for it. So there's absolutely a use for a support documentation, for example, but I'd question whether there was ever any use for the design documentation that we used to reverse engineer by pasting code into it and cutting out the bits to make it look like design documentation. That that was useless, right? That was a waste of time and we would have been better off producing the code that worked and proving it through testing. So our approach to that really is actually, this is our vision. This is the outcomes we expect to achieve from this project because any project needs to be able to justify it. And we think we will get return based on these milestones. And actually, we think that by slicing it in a certain way, you'll be able to see your investment come back to you more quickly than if you wait a year and a half for the entire thing to be finished. I think the regularity of the committees is actually quite an agile thing, because basically that gives you a window to always be talking about what you've done. And the rest of the the kind of rituals around Agile then play into it quite well. I think there there is a decision to be made about how much you need to bring the business into the kind of daily stuff of how Agile works from a development perspective versus them understanding this is the change that's coming and this is why the change is important and are you ready for the change? Because that doesn't change. But the fact that you start getting buy-in from, you know, 
week four and are able to demo what's going to happen, what's coming, means that that business is much better educated. And then it can actually say, yes, actually, that's right. That's wrong. Uh, I, I can do that thing um, and I need this change. I think the idea that people can can conceptualize complex problems from a piece of paper is is somewhat flawed when you're when you're talking about something like software. When you're when you're building a bridge, you can draw a picture of a bridge and it's pretty clear how the bridge works. When you're talking about software, I think it's very difficult for for everyone to conceptualize, right? Even the people who've been trained to build that and um, what I think we find is that we assume that everyone has that ability and, and not everyone does and not everyone should have, right? Because if you're, you know, if you're in charge of compliance in a bank or you in charge of sales and marketing in a, in a FTSE 100, your job is not to worry about how to conceptualize your software. Your job is to make sure that actually what, what your people are using is effective for them and it drives revenue. And if any of the people listening to this think, I'm actually, I'm keen to learn about Agile, they maybe want to move into a firm that is doing more Agile style work, where where would you suggest they start? I think you mentioned the, the Agile Manifesto. So so reading about Agile, um, yeah, the Agile Manifesto is an interesting um, place to start. Um, it's a good question, actually. I don't know where I would point someone for a first read. There's an Agile primer somewhere, which... I've got a link to which is really good, but I can't remember the name of it. The principles around Agile, I'm a big fan of the Lean Startup um, by Eric Ries. A lot of that is actually pretty much focused around how you deliver value without expending too much effort. It's a very good read. I, yeah, I, I think we'll have to come back on... Uh, no, that's, so the, the Agile Manifesto, you mentioned um, the primer as well. And actually, if, if you can send that to me... I'll put that, the manifesto, the Lean Startup, all links in the show notes so anyone listening can go and find that as well. Coming back to Clarisys, uh, obviously you mentioned that one of the reasons you started it was because you saw Agile being done badly and, and wanted to see it done right. Can you talk a bit about actually how how you met Claudia and Chris and what led to you founding Clarisys beyond that? Sure. So Claudia and I worked uh, at TR together. We we had a problem finding really good business analysts that could work across process and systems effectively. So that that was really the point where we saw a gap in the market. I think at the end of my head of customer data role, I, I, I got to the point where I either had to take a permanent job and kind of make a push for the top, if you like, or do something different. Uh, I didn't really fancy the politics of the permanent role in a client, and I got used to pretty much working for myself but equally you have to find you have to be clear on on where you want to go and be happy with the choices you make so i needed to do i needed not to just drift from a contracting perspective i think and and it took a while to cast around for the right idea um i toyed with a number of things that i could do and frankly claudia and i were in the pub and we decided that it would be a good idea to start a consulting firm uh, and Claire and Chris had worked previously together at Detica and uh, Extraprise or, or Chris at Detica and before that Extraprise, I don't think Claudia moved to Detica. And, and that's how we started. So we started in my front room probably six months later. We built a small spreadsheet that said over five years, here's where you might end up. Um, it looks viable. What really is the risk? And maybe in retrospect, you could have made it more complicated, but yeah, Um it's turned out okay so far. You mentioned earlier in the podcast that you started, you obviously started Clarisys and you continued doing the the independent work for a little while alongside that. Not alongside within. So that, that I think is a fascinating thing to understand is how, how you make that transition from being an independent, which has is viewed in a certain way, I believe in clients, into a consulting firm, which I think is viewed differently. How did you manage that transition so that the client that you were at at the time stopped seeing you as, as Matt, the contractor, and started seeing you as Matt, the CEO of Clarisys? That didn't happen in, at that time. So in the first two, three years, Basically, in order to fund the business um, and and to grow the network, really, it's a case of working through existing contacts or just working through a contract to to make sure that we had enough to cover people's salaries and, and generally give us growth capital. I think the evolution really is 
Um, so you might be at a client, you're working with them, you're saying, yeah, I'm a independent, but actually I'm running a consulting firm and we have other people who can do these things. So it's partly about sales. It's partly about building a great relationship with your client, where the client trusts you because you do good work. I think for the first few years of Clarisys, your positioning naturally as a small firm is really as a collection of point people who are good at their job. So, you know, the first few employees, yeah, they're great as BAs. And actually, you become known as, yeah, we can fill some gaps in our team using Clarisys. I think the evolution then is probably a few years later, as a firm grows, you're able to say, right, yeah, you've got that problem. We could give you a team that fixes that problem. And then the next evolution is to be basically able to say, um, this is the problem we fix. And um, you want us to do this because we're good at it. And then eventually, hopefully, you get to the point where people are thinking about their business problem and saying, well, actually, I think I want to talk to Clarisys about it because I know that they're good at this thing. Um, we're on that journey. I think it would it was probably naive of us to expect, and I don't think we, I don't know that we did expect that to happen right at the beginning. Um, to be honest, if you're a firm of five people and you put three of them on one client, you're going to go bust because at the end of that project, you probably haven't done the BD to develop the next client. And actually, it's it's not until you're thirty people or so that you can actually really get to a sensible blend of, of different sizes of project. Also. When we first started, we didn't have a very corporate governance organization. So for the first six years, mine, Chris's and Claudia's title was just director. Um, it was only last year, last year or the year before that we decided that from a decision making and clarity for the rest of the organization point of view, we needed to change into a more um, traditional management structure, um, which has helped us. But we were also right not to do it too soon, I think. And you talked about one of the challenges, I don't know if it was one you had or one one you'd learned from others around potentially overloading in the early days, staff onto one client because you become over-dependent on them. What other lessons did you learn either from mentors when you were setting up Clarisys or just from personal experiences setting up the firm? So I think the big lesson we learned was one year we hired, uh, I think, 10 people in one go. And we hadn't become very clever at cash flow forecasting at that time. That hurt quite a lot. Alongside our accountant having failed to realize that we should have started paying VAT in advance rather than arrears or something like that. That was deeply, deeply painful. In terms of the rest of the lessons, a lot of it is about discarding institutional baggage so I'll give you an example. Expenses. You need an expense policy, right? Do you? Because I hire people who go on to clients and work with senior clients and make decisions about how we should approach projects and uh, build their time to the client, etc., etc. And we trust them to do that. Why do we not trust them to submit legitimate expenses? There's obviously a, a boundary, right, where you want to protect yourself from fraud or something. But too much of the assumptions you make as a result of having come from one of the large institutions are about catering for the, I don't know, minority 5% of people who are bad behavior. And they penalize the 95% of people who are really good citizens and want to do the right thing for the firm. So one of the things we have to constantly fight is oh, we did that like that at Accenture, or we did that like that at wherever. Yes, but they had a different reason for doing that, and they might not even like it themselves, and you didn't like it when you were there. So why are we trying to do that? And it's accidental, it's not intentional. And the the other thing that's similar to that is the need for hierarchy or the the uncomfortableness with not quite being clear on where you sit in the world at any one time, right? Because I think we believe that and I think I've always believed it, that anyone has the capability to come up with a good idea and anyone can do a great piece of work. Sometimes you need a great deal of knowledge in order to be able to do something and you may acquire that knowledge in many ways and that might mean you have to be more senior. But that doesn't stop everybody being able to contribute. And so it's it's an interesting quite interesting when you often have to curtail your, yourself to make sure that you're allowing other people to deliver on that promise because it's very easy to kind of go yeah i know the answer to that i might not be right about the answer to that but i still think i know the answer how do you keep that going i fully agree with your point around expenses and the way that some larger organizations tend to cater for the lowest common denominator so 
expense policies and things will be set up in case someone does try and defraud the company. There's a quote I read uh, a couple of days ago, actually, that said, you stick a group of people in a room and ask them their favorite flavor of ice cream, they'll all come out at vanilla because groups tend to go towards the mean. They tend to stay away from the extremes. How how has Clarisis grew beyond you, Claudia and Chris? Did you keep that culture of challenging the norm when you were starting to hire people from the, the likes of the big four or all other larger companies? It's an interesting one. I don't know that we set out, um, well, maybe we did. I don't know that we set out to hire people who didn't fit at their parent company I think a culture is a function of the people you hire, right, and how you treat them and how you model the behavior that says people should be treated like this. And hopefully that's how that's happened. So I'm not going to claim to be a magician and be be able to really dictate a culture and, and potentially that's part of it, right, that resisting the temptation to dictate is probably fundamental. And also trusting your people to do the right thing. They might need some help about that sometimes and they might need to occasionally curb their enthusiasm, right? But most people want to do the right thing. If they don't, then they will not like it and they'll leave. And you have to be comfortable with that as well. But over the years, I think we've hired some amazing people. Um, Some of them have sadly decided they want to work somewhere else. I don't understand why. And those who have left hopefully have taken something of Clarice's with them. I find answering the culture question very difficult. I think it's something related to how people interact and what those people want. Let me ask a different question then. If I was a consultant, let's say senior consultant manager level, maybe up to senior manager, I was at the big four, I was at Accenture, I was used to that large corporate structure. And I said, actually, I want to go and try a smaller firm. What advice would you give to someone in that position to, to ease that transition and really make sure they get off to the best start in a, a smaller firm with a, a very different style? That's a great question. And possibly I'm not the right person to answer it, but I'll tell you what I think. I think, firstly, it's about being quite humble and understanding that, yes, you're obviously great at a bunch of things. Uh, you know, I might not be great at everything. I think, to be honest, all of us could take that advice. And then I think it's about taking time to understand the organization you're moving into and not assuming that it has the same norms as your previous organization and remembering why you wanted to move. There are lots of great things about Accenture, but someone moving is obviously moving for a reason. So you have to remember what your reasons for moving are. I think you have to be clear that you are confident in your abilities and you don't require rank in order to be able to operate. Otherwise, I think you're going to have an issue. And you have to want to grow people fundamental and central to to what our firm is is it's about growing people and allowing them the opportunity to succeed we have a structure that supports people's growth rather than rather than the other way around if you like you should talk to a couple of our recent joiners who've had to adapt i think some have found it more difficult than others we joke about deprogramming people as they join particularly people who've been at another firm for a long long time you do get used to it you get institutionalized that was relatively institutionalized when I left IBM, I think. So I think you have to be willing to be challenged on a bunch of your assumptions and realize there are other ways to do things. I think that's a really helpful answer. Thank you for that. It follows on, and some of what you've just said, I think, answers it in part. What are the common mistakes, if there are any common mistakes, that you see more junior colleagues making, I'd say outside of the deprogramming that you talked about? What is it that holds junior colleagues back that if people listening were able to identify in themselves and potentially change could help accelerate their career? Uh, My current bugbear is um, aiming for perfection constantly and really not looking for help early enough. Uh, Everything relates to Agile, right? But test something really early. Don't wait until you think your deck is perfect and then show it to the person who you're working on it with. That's just annoying because then I feel guilty about the fact that I rip it to pieces. I think fundamentally being able to ask for help is crucial to growing and growing effectively and and sustainably. Pushing yourself to the point where you end up either physically or psychologically broken is not helpful to anyone and we never want to see that. But we do see people sometimes get to that point. So trying to please everyone all of the time is a disaster. I think also it's it's easy 
to fall into the trap of thinking you're right all the time and just making sure that you are tempering your your tone sometimes to accept that maybe you're not right or making sure that you're in, you're engaging the right people. I think it's something that's leveled at consultants all the time that they're arrogant, they don't know our business, etc, etc. You never want that, someone to say that about you and sometimes people come across like that by accident. <sighs> Those are the those, those are the ones that come to mind. I'm sure there are more. Uh, we've been amazingly lucky or well planned, and I think what's really rewarding about the firm in general is watching people grow year on year, and you see different challenges emerge for them. One year, someone might be struggling with confidence. The following year, they've got over that, but actually now they're struggling to get everything done because they've taken on too much. We're all humans, right? So everyone's very different. So that's things that you see that hold people back. And, and I think actually in consulting, that's a, a really fair challenge that people do often aim for perfection and can spend hours formatting boxes and text and actually lose sight of the message. The flip side to the question of what holds people back, I think, is what do you see that really separates the the best from the rest? What is it that the people who here at Clarisys, who you have earmarked as you know your exceptional talents, what is it that they do differently that, say, the good consultants maybe don't? There's a few things. So one is um, about emotional intelligence. So around the office, there are all sorts of things about behaviors and brains. So so being emotionally intelligent enough to understand the direction the conversation is going in and pick up the kind of nonverbal cues, etc. Understand that person's agenda without really having to ask for it is crucial. And I think it lies behind the ability to kind of command rooms and really strike up a rapport and build trust with, with people. Then I think proactivity and owning a problem in the right way is probably the, the other key factor. So landing on a client, not really knowing what the objective is, working out what that objective is, delivering on it, making the client really happy, and then kind of moving on from that um, without having to be steered on that, making sure that there aren't blockers and, and potentially not taking no for an answer at times, right? Finding a way around, oh yeah, but so-and-so is really busy, the classic, you know, you can't get meeting for six weeks. Well, <laughs> really? I think that sets people apart and, and maybe that's not really about proactivity. Maybe it's that's about the set of skills that allow you to achieve progress even in the most difficult areas. Intelligence and intellect and structure of thought is obviously there as well, right? But I, I think across the board, I'm not sure that's what determines whether someone really succeeds or not. Actually, you can be the brightest person in the room and you might not succeed because you don't have AI and you aren't quite able to drive as much as you probably need to. I think your point about EI is actually, again, a really good one, because it's something that I think people talk about stakeholder management and rapport, but I don't know how formally trained people are on it. Do you see EI as a skill people can cultivate? I, I think there's a body of evidence that says you can cultivate EI, no question, right? It's Firstly, it's about awareness. So, you know, do you understand that it is a thing? If I'm very honest, I don't always want to go and meet new people, but I am very good at understanding what people's agendas are, particularly in a business context. So it's a skill you develop and, and you hone over the years, right? So if you're reflecting on, well, why didn't that conversation go well? Or was there anything else I could have got out of it? That's the first step to really being able to understand and, and develop your AI. I think the worst thing is where people kind of walk away thinking, oh, yeah, that was brilliant. Actually, you're like, really? Did you not notice that? your body language was completely off and the the people in the room kind of raised an eyebrow to you and and I guess that for me is is second nature right but I I think that is a difference between consultants and I'm going to ask the book question again I, I like to read are there any books courses websites that have either helped you or you point junior colleagues to because like you, I think it is a skill you can learn. Most of our training is custom. And one of the things I reflected on when I went to it was, why didn't I get trained on that in my first couple of years of consulting? Because that would have made my life much easier rather than mirroring and stuff like that. So I'm sure there are books, but I'll have to dig out the name. It's a really interesting point, though, your point around timing, around actually when people get trained on it. Because... I started in uh, regulation, so not consulting fresh out of, say, university. But my perception was that you're right. People in consulting don't necessarily get formally trained on these skills until they reach a more senior level. I also think there's an element around sales that similarly, I don't know if that's a, a view you share. We've, we're on the fence about 
training people too early from a sales perspective because what we want to do is make sure they're doing a great job for their client and we don't want them distracted by a utilization target or by a sales number and and in general across the firm we, we try and make sure we aren't really bonusing people based on factors like that because it's a team effort you don't really want to build a culture where one person feels they're much more important than the rest you can sell some stuff if you can't deliver it you won't get repeat work at that client and that's just a waste of time so we want people to develop skills that are about making sure that you're delivering the right thing for your client making sure that delivering high quality work the rest will follow and and partly it's about over time people will understand more about themselves and whether they want to continue doing full-on consulting or whether they want to do more account management or start building a thought leadership network or maybe go into business management people surprise you as well right there are people who turn out to be amazing as account managers you would never have imagined and so kind of try and predict that too early is it's got to be a pull from the consultant to say yes i'm interested in that i'd like to learn a bit more about it so I want to come on to another topic that you mentioned. We're going way back to the start here. Actually, we're going back before we even started recording the podcast, which is, is work-life balance. You've got a, what I found really interesting, blog on work-life balance, uh, some of the tools I know you mentioned at the start of the podcast. Maybe could we start, though, with what you were saying about where you choose to live? Uh, you, you obviously don't have to say exactly where, but I know you said you live in central London, which for me was quite surprising just because a lot of the more senior people in consulting that I know who've got families tend to base themselves outside. They'll go to Surrey, Kent, go sort of up north, St. Albans and past it. Apologies, listeners, if you're listening outside of London or outside of the UK, this is rather London-centric, but applies anywhere. You've chosen to live near work. Can you tell us a bit about why? So for context, I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. We, we, we looked at moving outside of London and we looked at the, the places Nick has just mentioned. And um, common to all of them is you've got a commute, right? And um, that commute is, I don't know, probably an hour when you get door to door, maybe an hour and a half and up to two hours. I mean, there are people I know who commute for two and a half hours a day. And moving outside of London means you get a much bigger house for your money. It means you get a bigger space. It means different outdoor stuff, lots of good things. But on the other hand, it means that effectively you're reducing the amount of time you can spend with your family because of the commute. So at the moment, for me, living in central London is a trade-off, right? So I don't get a bigger house, but I do get to take my kids to nursery and school in the morning. I have breakfast with them every day. If I want to, I can be home in time to see them before they go to bed. If one of them's ill, I can go and see them quite quickly. My commute to work is 15 minutes on a tube plus a, a bit of a walk. Uh, my wife's is, is a lot less than that. And, you know, the, the school and the nursery are not far from our house. So what it means is that we get a lot of time with our children. And to be honest, if you're going to have children, then you probably have to make the commitment to spend some time with them. Otherwise, that's just a bit weird. And I think we value time with them over, say, a 90-foot garden and a, a house twice the size. Now, that might change when we when they go to secondary school, but, but for the next three or four or five years, I can't see a reason to change that. On that point, because it's something you mentioned in your blog, you, as I understand it, are quite strict in terms of your working hours, or at least try to be. You try and, like you said, you're always there for breakfast, trying to be home at night. One thing that I think is, again, synonymous with consulting, and especially as you climb, is is that perception that, we, as we spoke about before, longer hours equals more output equals more progression. You've obviously succeeded in having a very senior position while having a very good work-life balance. What advice can you give to people who want to do the same? I think um, I think there are a few things. So one is about delegation. So I, I will generally be home by seven. That's not necessarily the most efficient way for me to work. The most efficient way for me to work would be to stay at work until probably seven, then leave. Uh, because the interruption as you go home means actually by the time you, you, if you've got stuff that you need to do, you've probably lost it. So actually, if I need to pick something up again, I'll be picking up at eight o'clock and finishing it off. But that doesn't happen all the time now, partly because I've tried to make sure that I get it done during the day. Overall, time management making sure you're going to the right things, getting involved in the right stages, not getting involved too late, clustering meetings. So not having gaps between meetings because actually that's not helpful. The gap between the meeting is likely to be less than half an hour. 
Um, and actually all it does is encourage you to overrun your previous meeting and feel that, you know, you've got a free bit of time. It's not free. You should have been doing something with it because otherwise you're going to have to do it at another time. And being smart about when you're going to be most effective. So I'm not great on a Monday. So if I feel Monday full of meetings, it might not be nice for the other people around me, but I will get my brain working again and um, I'll get a lot of stuff done. But if I want to do something creative, then I'm better in the middle of the week and in the morning. And and understanding that, right? Understanding that sometimes you just need to percolate a thought in the back of your mind and you just need to iterate on it a bit and it will come out right rather than sitting slaving away over the deck. And again, trusting your team to do the thing and making sure that you're telling them what it is you want. There just isn't the need to do it all yourself. And it's a growth opportunity for everyone else to do what you were going to do. So there are things that I, in my role, need to spend time doing. So I need to think about the future of the company. I need to think about the organization. I need to read a bunch of stuff to make sure I'm up to date. Now, some of that, actually, I don't mind. I kind of count reading as almost leisure, right? So if I'm reading a book between eight and 10, that's not working. That's just, I, I want to read something. There's a there's a great book about that kind of thought called Thinking Fast and Slow, which most of Clarisys has now read, I think, and is very insightful on, on why that works better for your brain and why sometimes actually switching off interruptions like messaging and email is good for you. The set of stuff in my blog Uh, it's really about accepting you have limitations right you can't do everything all of the time and actually doing one thing really well might be better than doing five things badly and understanding that tomorrow is still there and the day after is still there and trying to be superhuman isn't going to succeed it comes back to the point earlier you were talking about around well if you're working hard all the time how do you get through that one point that you mentioned a couple of times, and I think feels like a really key one for you, is delegation. And obviously, as you, you've moved up with your career, that's something you've had to do more. You talked about right back at the start, actually, that you learned delegation. I think you called them delegation mechanisms. What tools or ways did you learn to be able to delegate better? Sometimes you have no choice. So I think so quite early in my career... I was running some quite techie projects. And once you start running a team of, what, 10 or more, you have to delegate, right? You can't do it yourself. The only thing you can really do is try and make sure that everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing. So you you end up with no choice. I think the, the path of my career meant that I went through a bunch of places where I had to do stuff myself. And then actually running a massive program you can you don't have to be as busy as people think you have to be so you set a plan you let people deliver the plan then actually you can choose where you want to intervene and maybe that's it maybe it's just deciding where you want to focus your attention i used to uh, actually do some testing in my spare time on that program because that told me where we were and that gave me comfort and let me sleep at night because I knew whether or not it worked and I could look a stakeholder in the eye and say, yes, it works or no, it doesn't. Nowadays, I'm just too time sliced to be able to do anything but the most important thing. And partly that's then saying, well, what is the thing that most interests me or is in the most value for the company? And being aware of that feeling where you say, oh, I could do this better myself and going, yeah, but that's not the point. The point is that the next time someone will be able to do it nearly as well. And the time after that, they'll be able to do it better than you. And as a whole, growing and scaling the ability of people to to take on more complex tasks is how you're going to be successful, right? Being a knowledge kind of, what's the word? What's the opposite of radiator? Um, a knowledge black hole might make you powerful in a contracting sense, but is really annoying to everyone else. And in a consulting firm is the wrong way to operate. Touching on contracting there, actually. So like you were, I'm an independent. There'll be listeners to this podcast who are independents. This podcast covers the whole gamut of consulting, so both uh, in-house firms and independents. Sounds like one piece of advice you'd give to independents is share knowledge among client, clients and others. Is there any other bits of advice that are potentially more unique to the independent side of consulting from your experience? It depends who you want to be, I think. Contracting is a lifestyle choice, right? So I I wouldn't claim to be the best independent contractor ever because I'm not necessarily motivated by money. So I would often say to my clients, yeah, I only did three and a half days this week. I'm only going to charge you three and a half days um, when they were probably willing to pay five and there wouldn't have been any repercussion. So I'm not really in a position to comment. I left that world because I, I was going to stagnate 
you you get to a point where there's a glass ceiling really and I wasn't going to learn anything new for a while I thought or I was just going to have to repeat what I'd just done and rebuild a reputation at a different client and what's the point right it's you're not building anything which is why really it was a choice between going Permian and building Clarisys. Something else that I know you did during your period as an independent, well, well two things that I'm particularly quite interested in is you, you took a sabbatical. Yeah. You went off, was it five months for a ski season? Yeah. And you you did a master's, which and was that full time as well? Or was that a... So the ski season bit's easier. Uh, I worked pretty hard that year. I was emotionally drained. I needed a break. So I went skiing, which was nice. I'd recommend it. And then the master's, so whilst I was at... Barclay, I had actually registered to go and do voluntary service overseas. That didn't work out because they couldn't find the right role match for me. But whilst I was in that process, I'd also applied to do a master's because I feared that I would be bored whilst I was overseas. So I continued to do the master's. I was doing the master's by distance learning whilst I was running the large program at Thomson Reuters, which was difficult. So I was writing essays at the weekend whilst I was watching people go live. They weren't the best essays. And then I, I finished I finished the master's. It was a master's in economics. I did some of my best work in the Alps because actually after a day skiing, you have some time to concentrate. Uh, it was about the time of the financial collapse. So there was some interesting stuff from an economics point of view. I wouldn't recommend it whilst doing a full-time, full-on job. It was, yeah, quite difficult. Did you find maybe less so the master's when you were doing it weekends during go live, but did you find that experience with the, the skiing helped recharge you emotionally? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. So I think you, it gives your brain a rest. Uh, it allows you to feel like you've got the energy to reassess, gives you a chance to reflect. It was the first real break from work I probably had for 10 years. You have a week's holiday and it doesn't really do much. It doesn't reduce your stress level. And I think that was probably the extent of my holidays for the few years before that I would be away for a week or so not for an extended period of time which in retrospect is probably a mistake but that is one of the problems with contracting you earn the money whilst it's there and what would you say to anyone who either in-house or independent who's maybe thinking about a sabbatical but potentially concerned either it means they'll they'll miss a promotion or they'll struggle to find a new role or people might have a dim view on it when they they come back what would you say to those people who would like to but are nervous or maybe hadn't considered it I think you should just go and do it, to be honest. I think the worst thing is to end up with a regret. We encourage people to and support people to take sabbaticals at Clarisys. I'd say certainly if you're 10 years into your career and haven't had a break, I would go and have a break. No one is going to look at you differently. You'll go away, have some life experiences that might make you look at the world differently, and that can only be a good thing. Helps me, definitely. So you mentioned there people who have been in 10 years, they should do that. If someone is coming into the consulting industry, so say your, your recent graduate intake, we've obviously touched on learning about emotional intelligence as sort of quite a core part of that. What else would you say to someone who who is either looking to get into consulting or has just entered the industry? What are the things that they should really focus on? I think if you're thinking about going into consultancy, you need to ask yourself whether you're comfortable with uncertainty. I think the biggest factor for people and the most difficult thing people deal with is the uncertainty. Clients saying, oh, yeah, I want you to start on Monday and you don't start for a week or the inevitable project that's put off for three weeks or the project you think you're going on that gets canned and you suddenly disappear on another one. You have to be able to deal with that. That's never going to go away, however senior you get. When you turn up on the site, you probably find that thing that they want you to do is completely different to what you thought it was anyway. So that doesn't stop. In terms of what do you need to learn? I don't think there's any one thing that stands out. I think we don't really try and necessarily teach all the analytical skills because typically you try and select for that first. We do believe that in general, people have the raw talent to succeed if they pass our recruitment process. So we're not looking at different degrees and things like that, particularly. It's, it's different for different people. Again, for some people, it's about how they present themselves and the impression they make on people. For others, it's about attention to detail. And for others, it's about how they plan and break down work. If I was to choose, planning and breakdown work is pretty important. But we put a fair amount of effort into bringing grads into the business and making sure they're trained. So boiling it down to one thing is always going to be difficult. 
Looking forward now, you mentioned that you think Agile is, it's been in the industry for a long time, but is now getting the acceptance that it deserves, especially the larger firms. What do you see as the, the major trends impacting consulting over the next, let's say, three to five years? Currently, everyone's talking about RPA and automation. What do you see will be the next RPA and automation in three to five years time? I think there's a couple of things. So one is machine learning, AI, whatever you want to call it. That's going to have an impact, I think, on both our clients and on consulting firms. Um, Secondly, I think there's a risk to consulting in terms of as our clients digitize more and more internally, what is the what need does the consulting firm need to service? So if, if you've managed to build a digital customer experience, then great. But the need for consulting reduces the need for technical work possibly increases but the need for kind of pure play consulting on on change and business analysis to discover the process and things like that potentially declines it may not and and that's one of the things we have to think through and then in in terms of general trends i i'm starting to see internet of things become a bit more prevalent i think there are some security things to deal with there um it's very hard to predict um even a year out Right. So you can make a bet on, yeah, this thing's going to be big. Turns out it's not. So we we try and, and have a view, but it's not a strong view. And really, it's about making sure that you're you're talking to your clients and asking them what they think. So I, for me, yeah, definitely AI and, and probably some outcome based fee challenges to consulting firms. But equally, 20 years ago, people were talking about outcome based fee challenges to consultancies and they haven't necessarily come through in the way we thought they were going to come Fantastic. So I'm very conscious of your time and just three very quick questions to wrap up with. Firstly, we've talked a lot about some of the differences in your approach and in how you've developed that in Clarisys. If there was one thing um, in particular, what is it that you believe in consulting to be true that maybe very few or no one in the industry that you see outside agree with you on? Well, that's a difficult question, isn't it? I'm not sure there is, to be honest. I think I think there's a blend of different things you bring together, and you and across the industry, there's going to be people who believe, uh, agree with you. I think for us, the core principle behind Clarisys is really doing the right thing for your client, and then doing the right thing for your people. If you stand true to that, then then you're happy. In terms of differentiation, that's a, that's a different thing, and that's that's really about marketing. Uh, as you picked up, I'm quite strong and agile. I think. Other people are less strong and agile um, in some of the contexts that we work in. And this might be might be easier to answer. Um, are there any commonly held beliefs or opinions in consulting that actually you really disagree with? Um, lots. Um. <laughs> feel, feel free. What so, doesn't have to be one. Um, what do I really disagree with? I disagree with the idea that you have to be a certain level to be able to do something and that you can't trust your people to do the right thing. I think that's 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 not great. I don't like project managers who just tick off boxes. I see little value in formal qualifications like Prince2 uh, and anything really that's assessed based on a uh, guess and check um, exam. I detest the, oh, if we just throw more people at it, it will go faster and we'll get the result we need. That's absolute garbage. Um, ah, yeah. So delivering something to a client that effectively is really just an excuse to sell them some more stuff as a result of that. So you've done a piece of work, but you you end up delivering them a PowerPoint or a PDF, which actually they can't do much with. It really is a pet hate. It, it's not. You want your client to move forward. You're not in consulting to, to make sure that you're continuing to get business, right? You should be good enough to be able to get business elsewhere if, if that client doesn't want to continue um and holding to ransom on the basis of their own ip in your document seems wrong might have to edit that list but yeah there you go i i, I like the long list i think uh, I, should, I shouldn't have asked for one i think tell tell me all of them and it is an interesting point that one in particular around creating shelfware versus something that people can tangibly do something with and i I think is what can often get consulting a, a bad name, particularly on on client side. What steps can someone take to make sure that what they leave is actionable? Let's just let's say it's an operating model. They tend to be the biggest pieces of shelfware. 
I think partly it's about asking yourself, how is someone going to consume what I'm producing? To back to my earlier point, there's no point in producing something if no one's ever going to consume it. So what is their plan going to be, be and why do they want the thing that you're trying to deliver? So if it's an operating model, does that mean actually you need a change plan to tell the people and, and actually the endpoint of your assignment is not producing the operating model, but making the operating model happen? And okay, that might mean that the client wants to take that over, but that's not to say that there isn't a way of working with them over the last few weeks of the assignment to say, look, this is our thinking. This is how we got to this point. Now, these are the things we think need to happen. And actually, in three months time, we're going to check back in and help you if there's a problem. So I think I think that's what you're looking for actionable stuff. You're looking for working as a partner to the client rather than throwing it over the fence, which everyone tries to do, but not always successfully. But starting, there's somebody written a book about it, hasn't they? Starting with the end in mind. Somebody wrote that. Oh, it's um, one of the most frustrating books I've read recently, which was The um, Seven Habits of Effective People. Really annoying, really long and pointlessly so. There's a really good diagram on LinkedIn somewhere that summarizes it in one page. But if you're starting with a view of, well, actually, this is part of a wider thing for my client, then you're going to make sure you engage them and that they understand what's going on and that actually that isn't shelf life, hopefully. Thank you very much for that. And yes, I, I, I'm i going to admit to pub, in public that I've never actually made it to the end of seven hours. <laughs> I nearly uh, I think like you, I, I, could, I could tell you the habits and I, I've seen the diagrams and I've read the rationale. I think actually start with the end in mind from memory is the first or the second so i did get that far but the the rationale behind uh three through seven uh, i i've struggled with that though leads on very well to to my last question really which is again just giving back to our listeners we you've mentioned a a few books as we've gone through thinking fast and slow uh seven habits of highly effective people are there well let me ask it this way what books or, or individual book either either or do you find yourself giving or recommending most to your team here at Clarisys or or other people in your network lean startup for a while business canvas um business model canvas those must be the top three there's a, a bunch of quite interesting stuff about how you design organizations that are empowered so the Great Game of Business, I've just finished. I think that might be on my recommendation list soon. A very long, somewhat dull after a while, but quite rigorously researched book um, about the reinventing organizations, which is an interesting kind of thesis on uh, on where the firm is going. Because one of the interesting things for us is we are very focused on that bunch of needs that allow people to be happy at work, although people will disagree with me about the fact they should be happy at work and and enabling people and, and and that allows us to get the best out of people we think so what's interesting is that not all of our clients have adopted to that method so that that's one of those things it, it kind of depends on whether you're thinking about how you grow a startup or whether you're thinking about what works best when you're applying techniques to clients and so depending on what week it is i'm my mind will be in either way so thanks for those recommendations. I like the other books. I'll put all of those on the webpage with all the show notes so people can go and find them themselves. Lastly, if people want to find out more about yourself and Clarisys or, or get in touch with you, where can they find you? Where would you point them to? Uh, so you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find us on the clarisys.com webpage, obviously. Yeah, normal places, really. Fantastic. Right. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much for your time and all the best for the rest of the week. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.